So some of the nicotine addicts have been violating the Spirit Rock uh, rule, which is there is no smoking here. Uh, you may smoke in your car. I'm sorry, but that's uh, the law. So that'd be great if you would follow that. Uh, turn your will and your life over to the rules of Spirit Rock while you are here. So, um, we'll have more announcements before lunch, and um, it's just one of my, the word dukkha is the one that we translate as suffering, so one of my teacher colleagues calls it announcement dukkha. I thought I would start to uh, delve into uh, this teaching, the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths uh, are the foundation teaching of all Buddhist traditions. And uh, there are many different Buddhist traditions, and, and they all got, uh, they, at a certain point, they started to evolve separately because in the uh, late 12th century, um, the, the home of Buddhism was eliminated from the ho- its home in, in northern India by various wars and things. And so the, uh, the southern schools and the, you know, the Tibetan school and the northern school all got separated and really they, they evolved and became very different in many ways. That's why you know, Zen and Tibetan, uh, you know, Pure Land and Theravada Buddhism all look so different. But... Um, they do, they do all uh, hold on to the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which was um, really the first uh, systematic teaching the Buddha gave, uh, as, as far as we understand from the, uh, the record of his teachings. So the Four Noble Truths start with the truth of suffering. Um, I like to say that the Buddha was not very good at marketing because he started with the very downer kind of news. Most religions start with, you know, happy, revelation, salvation. I'm going to give you all the goodies. Uh, And they only give you the bad news later. Uh, The Buddha starts out, right, like, look, let's, can we talk? You know, the the truth is life is difficult. And... uh, and uh, you're going to need to deal with that. And so there's a, there's a verb uh, that goes along with each of the Four Noble Truths. As you can see, um, the nuns really didn't get through to me with my handwriting. Um, but uh, it says, truth of suffering, understand. We are, to, the Buddha says, we should understand the truth of suffering. And this, to me, is very much what step one in the 12 steps is about admitted we were powerless over drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, food, whatever it is for us, other people, that our lives had become unmanageable. It's understanding the suffering of our addiction is the starting point. We don't, why would we bother to stop doing this, you know, thing that we enjoy, or at least we once enjoyed at least, uh, that, that's what inspires us to change, is, is seeing and feeling 
the suffering inherent in our addiction. Uh, and I think that that's, in a lot of ways, the most important uh, point to, for us to know If, there's, if we still think that there's some pleasure or some benefit to be derived from our addiction, you know, we're always going to be at risk for relapse. And that's why you know, I think a first step, that idea of writing a first step, or just thoroughly reviewing the suffering that our addiction caused us, not just the suffering that we're experiencing right now when we decide, wow, it's time to do something about this, but really reflecting over a lifetime's harm we've done to ourselves and to others. Uh, and maybe that's been done to us through other people's addiction. But uh, I think that's, that's what, to me, has to really drive in this truth that, that uh, we can't do it anymore. And um, so the, and the Buddha has a similar, I think, agenda in putting this as, as the first teaching that he offers, to inspire people to follow some kind of a path to change and to grow and to let go. Because it is possible to live kind of in an in the ordinary way uh, without reflecting deeply and, and think, oh, well, this is the best life has to give. I'll just keep trying to get one moment of pleasure after another and you know I'll just solve this problem and then solve that problem and I'll be okay you know and that kind of uh, skip jumping from rock to rock uh, to, to, uh, if that image makes any sense um, and the Buddhist trying really tries to go look understand that there is no ultimate satisfaction to be derived by living in this conventional way of pursuing pl- uh, pleasure, comfort, security uh, through, through this dualistic or material world. So, I'm, I want you to take a different approach, is what he's saying. I'm trying to motivate you to take a different approach to life. And so the second noble truth is seeing why that's true, why, why there is this uh, suffering. So uh, at this point, I think we need to distinguish between the ordinary the, or the, the inevitable suffering that comes with being born and uh, all that happens in life. Uh, you know, sickness, old age, and death, as the Buddha talks about. And birth is suffering, he says, and if anybody's ever been at a birth consciously, other than their own. Uh, You know, that's usually, yeah, it's difficult. (laughs) Uh, Death is suffering. It's not usually pleasant. Aging sucks, you know. (laughs) Uh, Sickness. Does anybody enjoy being sick? Uh, Except, oh, it got me out of work today, you know. So... Yeah, but there's, that stuff is unavoidable. What the Buddha is talking about with the second noble truth is the avoidable suffering, the stuff that we bring on ourselves. And that is where he says that it's our ceaseless craving 
for pleasure, both physical and mental and emotional, uh, that actually causes our this uh, unnecessary suffering. Now, this is uh, this is where I think the Buddha has this sort of brilliant insight, and uh, and obviously really subtle insight, because we're the feeling of being of being a human being is that if I can get this thing or this experience or this relationship, whatever it is that I'm seeking after, this job, if I can get that, my feeling of desire tells me that then I will be okay. Then I will be satisfied. Then there will be some resolution. But the truth is that there is no resolution, no matter what. You know, when you're dying to get a job, you know, you've just been, you've been out of work for a year, 30 interviews, finally you get the job off for great, you know, wow, you know, that sense of relief and just, oh, wow, no more worries about money, I've got benefits, it's going to be great. And then the next day you've got to show up at work. <laughs> I mean, come on. Or if, you know, if I could just get into a relationship, you know, I just, I'm so lonely, I really want a partner. You find someone, it's great, it's terrific, you know, and six months later, you're stuck with this person, you know. God. Oh, I've got to figure it out, right? I've got to actually deal with this, a relationship. So there's no resolution, there's no uh, satisfaction to be derived from this ordinary way of living. So what the Buddha sees is that what's causing our discomfort isn't not having those things, but it's our longing to get them. And it's, this is what, what's such a clever insight. You see, he looks a little closer. Oh, it's not because I don't have that. It, when I let go of the wanting, that's when suffering ceases. Wow, that's... And of course, that's you know, what an order I can't go through with it, fundamentally. But he says, yeah, abandon this constant pursuit of comfort and pleasure and security. Now, this is where the teachings uh, get subtle, and we have to really be careful that we don't get too... Uh, you know, kind of black and white with this, because people will say, oh, the Buddha said desire is the cause of suffering, but what about, you know, desiring to love or be kind? Or, and so it, it's really not desire. We, we really have to, uh, I think, a, a better word is craving. It's this kind of this sense that I'm not okay unless this happens. That's very different from, oh, you know, I really want to be of service and help people. There's a wanting, there's a desire in that. But it's not a, I'm not going to be okay unless I get this craving. So to separate that out, and that's part of what our practice uh, needs to discern for us. Uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, God's will, it's the same kind of thing. It's, no, maybe I shouldn't even go there, but uh, just that, that we, I think we all want answers, right? And this is why fundamentalist 
teachings, whether it's you know, religious or 12-step or you know, scientific or whatever, that you know, people want this black and white answer. This is right, this is wrong. Just tell me what to do. You know, I don't want to have to make, figure it out. Well, it's, figuring it out for yourself is the vital step here. And only you can know if you are causing yourself suffering. And the only way you can know that is by being mindful, which is one of the big reasons why we cultivate mindfulness, to be in touch with how does that feel? Does this feel like a grasping? Or does it feel like oh, an expression of my heart's longing to be of service or to love or to give? And we have to keep watching that because we also know that that heart's longing can shift over into a locking down. So this, this presence, this mindfulness practice is very much about living the Four Noble Truths. This isn't like, oh, let me memorize the Four Noble Truths and follow them. No, forget about it. That won't help you. It's knowing this experience. And when we talk about insight meditation, we're talking about having the experience of seeing that, oh, I've got this thought of really wanting that, and then going, oh, let me just come back to breath. Okay, I feel better now. You just saw the truth of the second noble truth and the third noble truth, which is the third noble truth is I realized that when I let go and I abandon longing, that I'm okay. That's insight. Insight in Buddhism isn't up here. It's here. It's in your heart. It's in your body. You know, it's felt. It's known through direct experience. It was really, uh, I'll say my generation, but many of you would look to be in my generation, that were raised in the comfort and privilege of the post-war world, post-Second World War, for those of you who don't, there are so many, you know, it's, we're always in a post-war world, a pre-World War world in it in happening now war world, okay, uh, that we, you know, we were raised in that kind of comfort and security that came with the great abundance of, as America became the dominant economic power in the world. And, and we experienced exactly what the Buddha experienced, which was this protected uh, life where we really kind of got everything we wanted, although there was always something else we wanted that we didn't get, but we got everything we needed, and and uh, many of us saw that that was not uh, the answer, and which is why this kind of whole Eastern spirituality, particularly Buddhism, started to become interesting to people uh, in the '60s, and why this whole uh, world, this whole. Um, cultural change and sp religious and spiritual change happened in the West. Um, we had the same experience that the Buddha had, that, that uh, seeking pleasure is, is not the way to true happiness or freedom. Um, 
So it's not, this isn't just something for addicts and it's not just something for people who, you know, have some special experience or take LSD or whatever. It's, it's a kind of self-evident to people who are paying attention, you know. Uh, and uh, those who aren't just continue to, you know, spin. Uh, and, you know, those who are, we, we continue to spin, but at least we know we're spinning. You know, so. uh, it's half the battle, at least. So, then the Buddha says that the, the way to end suffering is this Eightfold Path. Uh, which is to be cultivated. So that, that's going to be the next list I'll put up there, the Eightfold Path. Um, so when we look at this in relation to the 12 steps, as I say, step, uh, the, really the first two truths relate to the beginning of the 12-step path. The, um, it's seeing our suffering and then seeing that our suffering is caused by our addiction. That's the first two Noble Truths. And then seeing that it's possible to end, I like the way I didn't put the quotes on the, anyway, (laughs) I need an editor up here. Um, Seeing that it's possible, that freedom is possible, that's what we could say the third Noble Truth is. And it's founded in the principle of karma, which is if something can be created, through action, then it can be uncreated through action. If you can become addicted by doing something over and over, you can become unaddicted by not doing it over and over. So this corresponds to the second step, which says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, a lot of people hear that step, and certainly when I first heard that step, I thought, oh, it's saying that if you believe in God, you'll be okay. All right. And at that point, I was kind of just desperate and deluded enough to just go, okay, fine. I'll do that. Um, Which I know many people do, and then other people just go, what an order, I can't go through with it, and just don't go there at all. But, But I think that's a really simplistic uh, understanding of the step. And, and what I'm interested in obviously isn't the language of the 12 steps, but the process that they are describing. And so what the pr- process of step two seems to me to be describing is saying that there is potential for change, there is potential for freedom. Uh, and of course there is. You know, Again, if we could create addiction, then it must be possible to uncreate it. Um, and of course, this this uh, implies that we aren't, by definition, or fated to be in some way addicts. You know, that's not like who we are. You know, because if you just are an addict, then that can't change. I can't stop drinking because I am an alcoholic. Um, you know, one one of the things I found troubling in some of the treatment centers now is the way they're treating heroin addicts with uh, Suboxone. 
where they say, uh, I've had people in treatment centers tell me, well, I'll just have to take this for the rest of my life because I can't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dr- an addict and I can't stop. So this is the substitute for it. So that, that, I find that troubling. I don't, I don't know if I was never a heroin addict and I know that's a hard one to break. But, um, but my belief, and it's only a belief, I know, who knows, is that... Uh, any addiction can be reversed uh, without long-term dependence on drugs, which is, after all, just another definition for addiction. So, anyway, um, let's not get too deep into that hole. Uh, But the second step, you know, people will kind of point to their lack of a belief in God as a reason they can't do the second step. But I think the main obstruction to people believing that recovery is possible is their lack of faith in themselves, not lack of faith in God. Uh, And particularly if you've relapsed a lot, it can get really hard to believe that you can do it. Other people can do it. I can't do it. Uh, I don't know. Again, I don't have answers for that. But except I, you know, I'm there. The one way that I'm a fundamentalist is that I believe in the law of karma. (laughs) I really believe that if you take the actions, that there will be results, and if if uh, you take the skillful actions relating to recovery, that the that you will at least be able to maintain recovery, not necessarily be happy, joyous, and free all the time. Um, the Buddha said, uh, you know, when he, he would be debated by people during his lifetime, and it's very interesting to see the debates that are in the texts that many of them are the same debates we have in religious circles today. And one of the arguments was, well, everything is preordained. There's religions that say that today. And the Buddha said, this is one of the, um, you know, one version of what he calls wrong view. This is uh, is an incorrect way of viewing the world and life. He said, if it were not possible for you to attain enlightenment or freedom or whatever you want to call it, if that weren't possible, I wouldn't teach you at all. And it's, it's because of the law of karma that you are able to do this yourself. You know, that you aren't dependent on an external God. That you can bring about this change for yourself. Uh, you are not, there is no predestination. Now, again, this is, this is a belief, okay? Uh, and, but it's a pretty credible belief if you watch how things seem to work in the world, which is that it does seem that actions have results. Now, you can always, if you want to claim that it was all predestined, there's no way to disprove that, but there's, it just sort of, it's, 
it's not a helpful view, I'll say that, uh, ultimately. And, and it just winds up being an opportunity for passivity. But um, I don't find it very, very believable. Um, so, step two. Do you believe in your own capacity for recovery? Um, do you believe in your own capacity for happiness? Do you believe in your own, uh, uh, not just capacity for happiness, but do you think that you deserve happiness? Have you earned it? Do you need to earn it? I mean, in order, you know, do you have to have done all the right things to to deserve happiness? Is it okay to be an imperfect person and still be happy? so I, I, I bring up these other points because obviously recovery is not just about stopping using a substance. You know, most of us deal with that, and within a couple of years, at at most, that's not really the biggest issue anymore for us. But life is still difficult, and the steps and the four noble truths are still in play and are still meaningful. Uh, so, um, so I think it is important for us to ask this question, uh, do I feel that I have the capacity not just for recovery but for happiness and for contentment? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of sorry I brought that up because it <laughs> feels kind of like, oh God. But let me, t- once again, the Buddha comes to the rescue. This is what the Buddha said. This is in the text. He says, there is no one who deserves happiness more than you. <laughs> Which also means there's no one who deserves happiness less than you. So it, <laughs> maybe it's not even about deserving it, you know, but that we all have that, you know, yeah. It's okay. We're all flawed. Uh, you know, so that that contemplation is is a good one when you're doing the loving kindness practice, and you're doing the part of the loving kindness practice where you're supposed to send love to the your enemy or this difficult person, and to remember that person also deserves happiness. Uh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> but I think it it does come back to that it's not about earning something. You know, you have to get a certain number of little gold stars before you deserve it. I'm not even sure deserve is the right word. Uh, so... Um, I'm going to shift gears because I want to do some other work. Um, I think we'll we'll go into um, the Eightfold Path uh, as kind of our main exploration this afternoon. Uh, Let me just say about the Fourth Noble Truth that, as it says, the way to the end of suffering 
we are supposed to cultivate or develop. And this is what we mean by a practice. And it's what we mean by working the steps, you know, is to cultivate or develop these uh, practices, but more than practices, really, way of life, way of being. And, um, and it's why, you know, we keep coming back, you know, and we keep showing up, and why we practice meditation on a daily basis, and why we, you know, why we practice these principles in all our affairs, because this is an ongoing, this is how we live. It's not, as you all know, it's not about arriving somewhere and being done or graduating. It's about living a different life. So, you know, I don't take this work, either the 12-step work or the Eightfold Path work, to be some burden that I have to do in order to have what I want. It, it is life. It is what's rich about life. You know, this idea that it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll go to church on Sundays so that I can have the rest of my life. I mean, that to me is just such an empty way of, of viewing a spiritual practice. To me, our lives are expressions of our, of our spiritual practice. And, and uh, you know, and literally, you know, I, I look for, for instance, how is my playing golf? How, is the, how do I bring my practice and my program into that? You know? And it's not by not swearing at the ball. <laughs> That's not what's important to me. What's important to me is that I get out there and I notice that the people I play with are very compassionate. You know? And that they also share in joy. I mean, I, you know, I was watching some, some of a golf tournament on TV yesterday, and these guys are playing for millions of dollars, and they're playing against each other, and the guy hits a hole in one, and the guy who's playing against him on, in that group has, slaps him high five. I'm like, yeah. I mean, what other sport does the other team celebrate when you do well? I'm telling you, golf, it's just the... <laughs> Sorry, it's my next, you know, maybe in my next lifetime, if I can play golf well, I'll be able to teach spirituality in golf. Anyway, so to me, it's about how to, it's not about, oh, I do these spiritual things. It's about my life as a spiritual component, if that's how I see it. You know, I, I can bring my, my heart, my wisdom into any situation. That's what, to me, practicing these principles in all our affairs. It's not like, oh, I should get a job at Spirit Rock so I can be really spiritual. Uh, watch out for that one. I mean, they're lovely people who work here, but they're human beings. They're flawed like that. We'll have to delete certain parts of this. <laughs> and of course, Katie, she's, uh, we don't count her. She's, she is a bodhisattva. There you go. Thanks. Uh, so I want to move into a, a mindful dialogue piece. Uh, and I do this primarily because working with speech and listening is so fundamental to our lives. And it's very challenging, I think, to be present in conversation. 
much easier. I mean, look how hard it is to be mindful when you're sitting there with your eyes closed, trying to pay attention to your breath with nothing to interrupt. But when you're actually interacting with another person and all the stuff that comes up with that, to be mindful in that situation, very challenging. In fact, the apparently what I have heard from some monks that the precept that's broken the most in monasteries is the precept on right speech, to not like talk behind each other's back and to speak the truth and speak kindly. So, uh, so I think it's really valuable to practice uh, mindfulness and dialogue. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the instructions for doing mindful dialogue, and then uh, I'm going to give you kind of a question to explore just as a jumping-off point. So you're going to work in pairs, what we call dyads here at Spirit Rock, because that sounds more spiritual. And uh, and, um, one person will speak and the other person will listen. And then after a few minutes I'll ring a bell, and then you'll switch roles. So it's not a conversation. It's just you, you take these roles. And some of you have done this with me before, so bear with me as I give the instructions. Um, so the listening process is, is fairly simple. It's just uh, to, instead of paying attention to your breath as you would in regular meditation, you're paying attention to your partner and what they're saying to you. And you're noticing when your mind wants to interrupt and take your attention somewhere else, or when you want to, uh, you know, add something or, you know, um, in, in, correct something or just, some, you know, agree with them, uh, and you just let go of all of that and just keep coming back to just really empty, a very open, empty listening, kind of listening from the heart, receiving, um, and. Uh, one of the things that helps to do this really on both sides, uh, particularly on listening, is to keep attention in the body. And just see if you can kind of feel yourself sitting as you're listening. Um, and that's actually the way to, this is actually the way to listen to a Dharma teacher, you know, by the way. Just, you know, to kind of try to drop your own story and just let the words come through. Not, not really try to make anything of what's being said or like remember it or anything. Just like listen and let it come through, let it touch you. Um, so mindful speech uh, it creates the additional challenge of your talking, which means that you are expressing thoughts. So you can't like drop thoughts, <laughs> you, you know, but um, you want to just... Uh, first of all, start by trying to connect with what's true for you. So really trying to speak the truth, not just kind of tell a story or project ego or image to someone. And not just kind of recite what you always say about yourself or about this question, if, if you've ever talked about the question, which you'll hear in a moment. Um, but kind of really... Listen to your own heart. Listen to what comes up. Actually, there's a, there's a letting go in this process. Uh, not really trying to control what you say, but just kind of seeing what, what comes up in response. And then f- kind of following that, because you'll have several minutes to talk, and just kind of following where does your heart kind of lead you. So it's kind of, there's a creative element to this. I, I ask people to really be aware of their use of language 
in this process. So when we talk about mindful speech, we talk about, first of all, speaking the truth. And uh, oftentimes we use language in ways that uh, distorts the truth. So we, when we make absolute statements, particularly like when we say never or always or should or shouldn't, we're making statements that we don't know are true or, or that really are not provable. Like, I always feel this way. Well, that's pretty provable that that's not true. But, I mean, it's something that I, years ago, one of my teachers kind of caught me in saying, oh, I'm always depressed. And he was like, well, you know, start to pay attention to when you're not. <laughs> because having those, making those statements reinforce those beliefs in our mind, and, that, and that's how we create our own reality. You know, we don't create our reality like, oh, okay, I'm imagining I have a million dollars at home. And I get home, there's a million dollars. It's like, that's sort of how that idea, but we do create our reality by saying, you know, I'll never be able to do this. And if I say I'll never be able to do something, then I'm never going to try to do it. So, yeah, didn't, never could do it. I just proved it. I was right. Um, so to, to really be careful of, of your use of language of, in terms of being accurate. And again, to... Uh, to try to stay in your body somewhat, to kind of feel yourself here rather than kind of getting out and being you know, in the other person or wherever we get when we're talking and we're not really in ourselves, to just kind of stay, stay grounded in some way. So, um, so before you find a partner, are there any questions about this instruction? Uh, yes. Um, it's okay to work with someone you know. I, would, I think it's better if you don't work with your, your partner, your, your husband, wife, uh, intimate other. But other than that, it's, I think it's okay if they're a friend. Okay, so, um, so find, uh, find someone to work with, and I'm going to give you the question at the last minute so that there's the least amount of rehearsal time. So you can turn it off. We don't need to record it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.